All right, good morning, church. Great to be here. It is a solemn day. I want to say that the singing of that medley, and particularly the singing of It Is Well With My Soul, was very beautiful. And there's just something about that hymn. You have to believe that there was angels, or perhaps Christ himself in the person of the Spirit, standing right next to the man that wrote that melody and wrote those beautiful words. Because I don't know how you feel when you sing that, but when I sing that, it just ministers to my soul. I, I feel like something is happening that words cannot describe, and I'm, I'm participating with God in this healing act that's taking place either in my life or in the life of somebody else. When we say, yes, the world is coming apart at the seams, Yes, we live in a time where death reigns and disease reigns, but above and beyond all of that, we still believe in a God who sits in thrones and who from his calm eternity orders that which his providence sees best. And we can say with truthfulness in our hearts that it is well with my soul. Can the church say amen? Now, we're continuing our series on um, Exodus. In fact, initially... Uh, we didn't know if we were going to have time for a third part on the sanctuary. But as it turns out, we have time to add a, 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 a final sermon here to our Exodus chapter in our Ablazing Grace series. And coupled with that, as we've already mentioned, is the reality that this church family has just lost to death, to a sleep, uh, one of its dearest, and that is Jerry Walbrin, our caretaker. And so at the end of the sermon, in a way that I think will tie in really beautifully and really contextually, we're going to spend a little time reflecting on Jerry and reflecting on the contribution that he has made to this congregation. And you'll see how in many ways Jerry Walbrin embodies the very principle that we're going to be talking about today in the sanctuary. And so we're going to begin with prayer and then we're going to get right into the study of scripture. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are anticipating your presence with us today. Father, we know that, that you and Jesus are in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. You are there, Jesus interceding on our behalf, and you there receiving that intercession, looking down upon us with fatherly and paternal care. And yet, Father, we are also aware that the Holy Spirit is here amongst us and with us not just in the walls, but in the hearts of the people, within the walls of our very hearts. And Father, today here in the Kingscliff Church, especially for those of us that are longtime members and visitors, this is a, this is a heavy day. It's a solemn day, and it's a sad day, but it's a, it's a day that is sad coupled with joy, coupled with hope, coupled with confidence. Because Father, we have lost one of our brightest and best, one of our dearest, one of the most hardworking servants that this church has had. And today as we study the sanctuary, as we study the maintenance of the sanctuary and the building of the sanctuary and the support of the sanctuary, Father, what a perfect opportunity for us to highlight this man that you gave to us as a gift, Jerry Walbrun, who was a support in terms of maintenance and the putting together and the keeping of this facility that you have entrusted to us. And so, Father, today as we turn our attention to Scripture, we pray that you would turn your attention to us, that you would shine your face upon us and give us a message today that transcends the words of a pastor or the words of a preacher. Give us today the words of your Spirit to our hearts. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Let everyone say, Amen. All right. 
I want to begin by asking you a question. Sanctuary part three. This is really exciting for me because originally we had only planned two parts in the sanctuary series, but as providence would allow, we've got a third part here. And this is something that, frankly, I've been here for almost 16 months now, and this is something that I've wanted to preach on from the beginning. But I didn't want to just stand up and, and preach on it in any old willy-nilly way and the church wonder, well, why did he preach on that now? Is something the matter? The answer is no. It comes up really nicely, really textually, and really, really appropriately here today. And I want to begin this sermon on part three of the sanctuary by asking the question, does, does anybody know who that man is? Raise your hand if you know who that man is. Raise your hand nice and high. Okay. Um, can you bring the lights down just a little bit, Jonathan? I want to, yeah, that'd be great. There'll be a few pictures here. Um, who doesn't know who that is? Anybody will, brave enough to raise your hand and say you don't know who that guy is? Okay, that's all right. Um, why, doesn't, why don't those of us who know who this man is tell those who might not know? What's his name? His name is Dr. Ben Carson. Very good. And Ben Carson is best known probably as being arguably the most influential and famous, certainly famous neurosurgeon ever. And uh, he's performed a number of remarkable surgeries, not the least of which is he performed the first ever surgery on a baby while it was still in its mother's womb. If you can imagine the complexity that would be associated with that. They also, he performed the first ever what's called hemispherectomy of Siamese twins, where Siamese twins were conjoined together in the head. And the two twins shared halves of the brain. And Dr. Carson, in a surgery that lasted the better part of 20 hours, successfully removed those two twins. Uh, he's done it n numerous times now, but he was the first one to ever attempt it. And it was successful. And uh, he's a remarkable man. He's written a book called Gifted Hands. In fact, there's a movie, a Hollywood movie, that's been made after his life. And so... Many people sort of had perhaps heard of Ben Carson. He was largely known in Seventh-day Adventist circles and in medical circles where he was well known as being a successful and accomplished neurosurgeon. He's since retired. But about 18 months ago, or maybe it was more than that now, maybe more than two years ago, Ben Carson was asked to speak at, in Washington, D.C. for what's called the National Prayer Breakfast. And every year in Washington, they get the various you know, leaders together, the UN secretary is there, general secretary, the president of the United States is there. It's conducted uh, in Washington, D.C., and they invite, you know, all sorts of people to come to have sort of a speech. And it's a little mini sermon. It lasts probably the better part of 20 minutes or 25 minutes, and they've had a number of people over the years that have given that speech. Well, not the last year, but the year before, I believe, Dr. Carson was invited to give the presentation, the, the, the major morning presentation for this national prayer breakfast in Washington, D.C. And uh, what he said was actually quite fascinating. If you've ever watched the, series, uh, the, the sermon that he gave, it was quite good, the presentation. But what got most people's attention was that he actually called out President Obama and particularly some of President Obama's policies while Barack Obama was immediately proximate to him. In other words, directly next to him. And he, he st sort of started talking about health care and things that would work and wouldn't work. He talked about tax policy. And a lot of people were like, whoa, who is this wild, crazy, zany, courageous medical doctor who would have the audacity to call out the president of the United States of America just 
right there, in public, live, unscripted. And uh, in the sort of wake of that, people began to say in jest, Ben Carson for president, Ben Carson for president. Well, enough people said it loud enough that at some point, Ben Carson, who I would call a friend, somebody that I've met and spent some time with in South Africa, his lovely wife Candy as well, he heard it enough times and enough people were saying it that he decided against all odds to run for president of the United States. So he's one of a number of conservative candidates on the Republican side that have chosen to run for the president of the United States. On the Democratic side, that nomination is almost certainly going to go to Hillary Clinton. So the big question is going to be, who will run against Hillary Clinton? And Ben Carson, a Seventh-day Adventist retired neurosurgeon, has put his hat in the ring. And uh, just this last week, the GOP presidential debate took place, where they got all of the not all, actually, because there were too many of them, but they got the top contenders for the GOP nomination together in a televised debate. And then when the debate was done, they asked viewers and others who they thought won the debate. And based on all the material that I've read, people thought that Ben Carson came in either second or third in this debate. And right now, according to most polls, he's running either third or fourth, but a strong third or a strong fourth, which is really remarkable when you think about what a strange turn of events that a Seventh-day Adventist would be running for president of the most powerful nation in the world. Just let that sink in for a moment, right? That's just like, really? And one of the things that Ben has brought to the table, Dr. Carson has brought to the table, that has garnered significant amounts of attention, both positive and negative, is what is called a flat tax, a flat tax, sometimes called a proportional tax. And Ben has been so radical as to suggest that people should be taxed simply on 10% of their income. A flat tax, a tithe. And uh, he's received, again, a lot of praise for this radical notion, but he's also received uh, a lot of scrutiny for it. And I want to share with you a quotation from Dr. Carson that he gave just this week after, in the wake of the, the, the presidential debate, the GOP debate, he was questioned about his flat tax policy. What does it mean? What's the point? What are you on about? And this is what he said. You make $10 billion, you pay a billion. If you make $10, you pay $1. This is his proposed policy. Of course, I would get rid of all of the deductions and all of the loopholes, but here's the key. People, they look at a guy who put in a billion dollars and they say, hey, he's still got nine billion left and that's not fair. We need to take more of this guy's money. That's called socialism. And what made America a great nation was that we had a very different attitude. We would say, hey, he just put in a billion dollars. Let's create an environment that's even better for him so the next year he can make how much? 20 billion and put in? There's that flat tax, that consistent 10% flat tax, $2 billion. That's how we went from nowhere to the pinnacle of the world in record time. Now, my point here this morning is not to suggest that we, that we should hope that Ben Carson becomes the president or if there are any Americans here today that you should vote for him, but that it's very interesting that this notion of a flat tax, a proportional tax system where everybody is taxed proportional to what they earn. And, and Dr. Carson gives two extreme examples. You earn $10 billion, you pay a billion in tax. 
If you earn only $10, you pay a dollar in tax. Well, of course, most of you here this morning would know that this is not original with Ben Carson. This idea of the basic fairness of a, of a scheme that's driven by proportionality is, is inherent to Scripture. And it's found in Scripture all the way back in Genesis and extending up into the book of Revelation as well. And we're going to talk about that today. Now, we're going to start with just a little bit of backdrop here about the nature of this idea, this large biblical idea that is sometimes referred to as stewardship. That's sort of an old-fashioned word, a bit of an antiquated word. We don't use it much, but you can think of it simply in terms of management. This biblical idea of management, not of ownership, and this is going to become huge for us, but of management. Well, of course, the Bible opens with the arresting line, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we can deduce from that simple idea that God is the creator, that if he is the creator, he is also thus, in some significant sense, the owner of the world. God is the what, everyone? He's the owner of the world. And this idea that God is the owner and mankind, beginning with Adam and Eve, and now us as their descendants, are the managers or the stewards, not the owners. This is a radical notion. And I want to talk about how this radical notion becomes pervasive, not just in that 10% that we return in tithe, but in the way that we view our lives, the way that we view our church, and in the way that we view those around us. So follow me, follow with me here as we go on a brief biblical journey of this notion of management, not ownership, but stewardship. Starting with a quotation from the Seventh-day Adventist Handbook of Theology, the section written by Charles Bradford, he writes, The biblical concept of stewardship transcends and informs the whole of Christian teaching and doctrine. That's a big statement. This idea that we are managers, this idea that we are stewards, says Dr. Bradford, informs everything that Scripture has to say. He goes on. It embraces and connects many of the great doctrines of the church and becomes an organizing principle for understanding all of Scripture. For example, the doctrine of creation, which we've just mentioned, the doctrine of humanity, redemption, and restoration, the doctrine of the Sabbath, and the doctrine of the church are inextricably bound up with the idea of stewardship. Stewardship also becomes the root of mission, the basis of sharing the gospel with the world. So this idea of stewardship or of management is a giant idea. It's saturative in the Bible, and according to Bradford, and I completely agree, it actually becomes an organizing principle by which when we go to read the text of Scripture, whether it's in the Psalms or in Genesis or in the epistles of Paul or the Gospels, we bring this idea of stewardship, that we are placed not in ownership, but in management of a number of things. Now, immediately, my strong suspicion is that the vast majority of us are already fairly sure of what I'm talking about, and that is money. And you would be right. That is a part I would even go so far as to say a small part of what we're talking about. So let's continue and sort of understand the big picture of what we're talking about when we talk about biblical management or biblical stewardship. First of all, when you speak to people about the world before sin, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and you say to people, before sin there were two institutions, or you just say there were, there were pre-sin institutions. Before there was death, before there was disease, before there was sin, God gave these institutions, these organizing, regulating, benefiting institutions in the Garden of Eden. Most people will say there are two of them. Number one is 
marriage. God gave Adam and Eve one another, right? The two shall become one flesh. The other is the Sabbath. And they'll say those are the two pre-sin institutions, when in reality, there is a third pre-sin institution, and that was that God gave Adam and Eve dominion or management or stewardship of the garden and by extension of the larger earth. So when you think about it in this context, this is really huge because we, we, we are committed as Bible-believing people to the sanctity of marriage. Can somebody say amen to that? Just this morning in our youth Sabbath school class, we're beginning to study through, of all things, the Song of Solomon, right? And I told the kids jokingly that you, need to get it a per- you needed to get a permission slip from your parents to come to this class. And uh, by the way, feel free to take your kids out of there at your own peril. But anyway, we had a great time today where we had, you know, Reuben was the lover and he was reading to Moesha, who was the Shulamite woman. Then Levi Johnson became the lover and he read. No, we couldn't get any other girl besides Moesha to be the Shulamite. Uh, None of the other daughters of Jerusalem were willing to throw their hat in the ring with those guys. But anyway, so we were sort of role-playing today through the Song of Solomon. And it's, it's big, it's hot, it's heavy, and it's awesome. And one of the things that we see, not just in the Song of Solomon, but in Scripture, is that God loves relationships. Can somebody say amen to that? And unsurprisingly, when our children, our little 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 10-year-olds and 12-year-olds, quite without our permission, suddenly become 14, 15, and 16-year-olds, they also, at some point, start to love relationships, particularly relationships of the of the heterosexual variety, turning towards somebody of the opposite sex, right? And we're, you know, this is always a time of sort of ambiguity with us. What do we do? Do we encourage that? Do we discourage it? Do we educate about it? Well, let me just say a word about that. The very best place for our young people to be learning about sexuality is in church. Can somebody say amen? But what are the other options, right? And home, that's a great point. In home and in the church. But what are the other options? The internet? Hollywood? right? The, the magazines that line the shelves of the supermarkets, are these the places that we want our young people to be learning about what sexuality is and what relationships are? The answer, of course, is no. In the beginning, we see that God set up this beautiful ideal, and this ideal was a monogamous commitment between Adam and Eve, lifelong heterosexual commitment between one another. That's undeniable. Now, we live in a world today, and it's a world that is rapidly changing. It's a world in which all of the societal norms of, say, a hundred years ago or 50 years ago are being hugely questioned. Something that's very important to bear in mind about that is that we live in a broken world. We live in a world where people are broken, bodies are broken. As we're going to talk about as we come to the end of this program, hearts that were beating yesterday suddenly stop. Cells that were perfectly healthy turn cancerous. We live in a broken world. And because we are broken people in broken situations and in broken worlds, it should come as no surprise to us that one of the most fundamental things about us that gets broken is our sexuality. And this manifests itself in a variety of ways, right? It manifests itself in ways that are healthy and unhealthy. And one of the great truths of Scripture is that God is always seeking to work with and even through our brokenness, steering us, guiding us, directing us toward the ideal, but never casting us off if we fall short. I'm familiar with that passage that you would remember well that says, for all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. If God cast all people off who fell short of the ideal, none of us would make it. Can you say amen to that? 
But yet we are presented with this ideal there right in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve and their connection together. And they were to be the parents of offspring who would then themselves be the parents of offspring. And so this is a pre-sin, pre-death, pre-fall institution, as is the Sabbath. Marriage and the Sabbath connect us to a picture of God and to a picture of reality that frankly flies in the face of the world in which we live, a world in which people deny the existence of God, they deny the sanctity of marriage, they deny the biblical ideal, and yet here are these backwoods, backwards people that insist that Saturday's the Sabbath. It's not a day for working, it's not a day for, for seeking our own pleasure, it's not a day for shopping and spending money, it's not a day for going out and eating and causing others to, going out and eat to cause others to wait on us. No, this is a day for resting, not just the physical bodily rest, but the rest of the soul. That sounds crazy. It sounds wild, it sounds strange, it sounds weird, but here's these people that insist on these pre-sin, pre-death, pre-fall ideals. But another remarkable pre-sin institution is not just Sabbath and marriage, but stewardship. The idea that we don't own the earth. God didn't say to Adam and Eve, the earth is yours, do with it whatever you want. He said, the earth is mine. The earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof, says the psalmist. I entrust you with it. Take care of it. Extend it. Guard it. Tend it. Keep what is mine. You're in stewardship. You're in management. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. And so right at the heart of the whole sort of biblical ideal of what's taking place in stewardship is this notion that God has put us in trust with something that isn't ours by ownership. Now this goes far beyond your money. Far, far, far beyond your money. It encapsulates and it encompasses many things. And I'll just give you four very simple uh, words to remember this sort of larger picture of stewardship. God entrusts us with time, talent, treasure, and the temple. These are the things of which we have been put in trust. These are the things that have been vouchsafed to us by God with, with the stewardship responsibilities. First of all, time. This is the stuff of which life is made, right? No one of us can guarantee that we'll be alive tomorrow. No one of us can guarantee that we'll be alive next month. We make plans. We have dreams. We have hopes. We have desires. But ultimately, our heart beats from one, mode, one moment to the next under no compulsion of our own, under no necessity of our own. You don't make your heart beat. You can stop it, but you cannot keep it going, right? Time has been entrusted to you. Whether you are given the privilege to live for 20 or 30 or 40 years or, like others, to live into their 80s and 90s and beyond. Time is the greatest of all talents, and God gives us time. It's on loan to us. In the, in the fullest and most significant sense, that time doesn't belong to you because your life doesn't belong to you. Your body doesn't belong to you. God loans time to you and says, now manage that time. Use that time in a way that is both helpful to you, helpful to the world, and glorifying to me. In addition to time, we have also talent, skills, and gifts, and the education that God has entrusted us to. Every one of us in this room has various aptitudes. We just saw Trent up front, and, and uh, uh, Jared remarked that he has autism. That gives him an aptitude in certain areas that we don't possess. I spent three years of my life taking care of people who had various um, uh, situations like that, including fetal alcohol syndrome and especially autism. And one of the things that you learn when you spend time around people who are autistic is that they have tremendous aptitudes in areas that we don't. And we might have some aptitudes in areas that they generally don't. But it's not a matter of greater and lesser, it's a matter of different. 
Every one of us in this room has different aptitudes. Some are musical, some have a great education, some have quick thinking minds, some are very good photographers, others are good painters, others are just good with making money. If you give them an economic situation, they can get money out of it. Some are just great parents, others are great readers, some are great teachers, some are in the medical field. The, the aptitudes in this room, the skills and the talents in this room would be a, as diverse as the people that, that are in here. We're going to talk about that when we get down to the end, when we start remembering our brother Jerry. Different talents. And God says, here are these talents. Here are these skills. Here are these aptitudes that I give to you. Now use them to benefit not just yourself, but those around you, and ultimately to bring glory to me. So too with our treasure. I'll talk more about that in just a bit. Our treasure, though, is not just our finances and our resources. It also includes things like our children. Right? Our children. Who would, who would deny that your children are the treasure of your heart? Right? This is an opportunity. God is in... Clearly your children don't belong to you in the ownership sense. You don't own your children, but you have access to your children for a period of time in which God says, I put you in trust. I put you in management. This belongs to me because all life belongs to me, but I'm trusting you to raise this child to the glory of my name. And then finally, the temple. And this is a remarkable one here because the temple in the New Testament really is, is two things. It's your own physical body, and it's the larger church. We don't have a literal physical temple in Jerusalem that we go and offer animals and things to, like they did in the Old Testament sanctuary. We have the New Testament sanctuary, which is the church, the community of faith. Just a word on that. I have people that often ask me about my tattoos. They say, hey, I notice you have tattoos. Why do you have those tattoos? You know, should a Christian have tattoos, etc.? And it's remarkable. There is a Bible, a single verse of, that I'm aware of in the Bible that says that you really shouldn't get tattoos. It's in Leviticus 19.28. But I never use that verse, and here's why. That same verse that says don't make marks upon your body for the dead, also in that same area of Scripture says don't cut the sides of your beard, don't mix linen and flax cloths together, don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. All of these things we regard as cultural. All of these things we regard as idiosyncratically Jewish, but then we want to go cherry-pick the one about tattoos out. There's actually a far better and, I believe, more biblical reason as to why we should abstain as Christians from getting tattoos. And it's a very simple idea. And that is that your body isn't yours. Your body doesn't belong to you. Your body belongs to God. And if I lent you my car, or if I went out of town for a while and I lent you my house... You don't have the prerogative to paint my house or to change my car. We have no express permission from God to be able to decorate our bodies in this way. And so without that express permission, we shouldn't assume that we have the right to treat something that is not ours as if it was. You follow that line of reasoning? It's very persuasive, I believe. So we have all of these things, time, talent, treasure, temple. We've been placed in trust. One of the ways that God gave the temple and gave the sanctuary to ancient Israel was not by some miraculous fiat where the temple just fell out of the sky. That would have been an option available to God, possessing as he does the resources of omnipotence. But when we go back and we read Exodus chapter 25, you can join me there. When we read those opening verses, it's quite remarkable how it is that God comes to build his house. He builds it with free will offerings. I mean, now just think about that for a moment. We're going to build a house for God, and God owns everything. Let the irony of that settle in. 
Let them make me a house. This is the classic example of the child going to the parent and saying, Mom, Dad, can I have $100 so I can buy you a gift? Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skin, dyed red, badger skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and the sweet incense, onyx stones, stones to be set in the ephod and the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. What an irony. That God made all of those stones, God made all of those precious metals, God made all of that wood, God made all of that fragrance, all of the things that would go into the incense, all of that oil, and he says, you bring me some of what is already mine. You do it freely. You do it voluntarily. You do it from your hearts. God could have taken the sanctuary and he's, as, he, as he does in the new heaven and the new earth with the Jerusalem, which God built, he could have just dropped that there on the Sinai desert floor in a miraculous and marvelous display of his godness. Just drop it right down. No one would have doubted or denied that that building came from God in the same way that no one will deny that the new Jerusalem was built by God. Remember, Jesus said, let your heart not be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare. I'm building a place. God could have built that place. But the fact that he didn't is remarkable. He said, you guys build me a house. I want to see if you can voluntarily, with your own heart and your own free will, bring me what's already mine. Now watch what happens. Jump ahead to chapter 36. You're in Exodus. Jump ahead to chapter 36. And let's see how that played itself out. When they began to bring the gold and the silver and the acacia wood and the spices and the fragrance, what happened? The precious stones. Verse 6. And Bezalel and Ahaliab and every gifted artisan in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do it according to all that the Lord has commanded. Then Moses called Bezalel and Ahaliab and every gifted artisan in whom, in whose heart, there it is again, the Lord had put wisdom. Everyone whose heart was stirred to come and to do the work. And they received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing him freewill offerings every morning. And all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work that he was doing. And they spoke to Moses saying, the people bring much more than enough. Let that settle in. The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout all the camp saying, let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done. Indeed, it was too much. Can you imagine if that was the problem that we were facing here in Kingscliff? Hey guys, we're receiving a little too much offering. Can you please refrain for a few months? We're way, we're way ahead. We're paying bills for 2025. So just go invest that money. If that was the problem we were having. Now don't get me wrong. We're not in any major financial crisis here. But neither are we in a major financial surplus as you're going to see in just a moment. 
I mean, what a remarkable thing here that God says, hey, you guys build me a house from my own materials. You guys build me a house from my own stuff. And the people clearly understood this nature of ownership and management, the difference, stewardship and ownership. And they said, hey, man, this stuff belongs to God anyway. This is God's precious stones, and this is God's acacia wood, and this is God's gold, and this is God's silver. So we're just going to bring back to God what was never ours. And then the artisans, who may not have been particularly wealthy, but they were skilled, they brought their skills. And in this beautiful picture of tent, just imagine it in your mind's eye, this beautiful structure that had not before existed begins to be created there on the Sinai desert floor. And it's all being built for God and to God and in worship of God. And yet all of it was always God's before. It's this beautiful picture of, of people being given an opportunity to do for God what God could have done for himself. We see this, this the way that God is a delegator. The way that he puts people in charge, the way that he, he says, hey, you, he trusts, he believes, he, he gives us the opportunity to participate in his work. Now, the system that he set up there in the sanctuary, because not only did the sanctuary itself not just come magically and miraculously out of heaven, the people that worked in that sanctuary were the Levites, and particularly in, as the priests, the sons of Aaron. Well, I'm going to say something here. That ministry was not money-generating. Unlike, say, being a farmer or a blacksmith where you provide either a service or a trade or you provide some commodity that can be, that can be used to generate wealth. Ministry does not produce money. And I want to say this, and it shouldn't. Oh, somebody should have said amen to that. Anyway, you missed your opportunity there. I mean, we live in a world where money and ministry get get tragically and sadly mingled. Let me tell you one of my favorite things to tell people when they call me and say, hey, Pastor Ashrick, we would love to have you come to Norway. We'd love to have you come to Denmark. We'd love to have you come to Western Australia. What do you charge? I love to say, my fee is nothing. I have no charge. I already have a job. I'm supported by my local church. I don't want to be double dipping getting paid by my local church, getting paid by my local conference, and also getting paid for something else. Well, who's, if I'm over here getting paid when I'm preaching here, well, who's paying me back here? Is that fair? One of my favorite things to say to people when they ask me what my fee is, is to say, I charge nothing. My fee is nothing. If you pay my ticket, and you pay my food, and you get my family there, only my expenses. And it's great to tell that to people who are like, because clearly not every preacher practices this same... Um, modest invoicing because they're like really you, uh, nothing well what's your speaking fee i don't have a speaking fee well what's your honorarium i don't have an honorarium never have beloved i want to tell you it's a beautiful thing for me to be able to say to people the only money that i make off of ministry is from the free will offerings that are given by my congregation can, can you say amen to that can you imagine the duplicity that immediately arises when people profit off of spiritual things? You don't have to imagine it because this is the model that many churches operate on. It's the congregational model. So all of a sudden, I'm incentivized to say things that will increase my congregation, that will increase the giving of my congregation. I'm now, I'm now mingling money and ministry, and it's a, it's a recipe, I'm telling you, for deceit, for dishonesty, for compromising the truth. But as it is, I can say what I want to say, and if you don't like it, I still get paid from the larger body of believers. Can you say amen? 
It's a beautiful picture that keeps me humble and it keeps us all aware of what's happening above board. Above board, right? And so here's this idea that the Levites weren't generating money. They weren't, they weren't planting corn and selling corn. They weren't shoeing, uh, you know, making a, a blacksmithing thing. They, they weren't making any money. So God created a system called the tithing system where every Israelite would take from, from their increase 10%. This gets back to Ben Carson's flat tax his proportionality scheme. 10%, and they would bring that to the sanctuary, and the Levites would live off of that. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, and, and Daryl Land, where's Daryl? Is he awake? He's usually not, but is he, is he asleep or awake? Wake up. Keep it down. I'm working on it. Daryl said that I was going to congratulate you for your generosity, and I'm not, actually. I wouldn't even consider, to consider doing any such thing, because when it comes to the tithe, it is not your generosity that causes you to pay it because you don't pay tithe. And one of the most important things you can do right now, beloved, is to disabuse your mind of that notion that you pay tithe. You pay your internet bill and you pay your mobile bill and you pay your electric bill, but you do not pay tithe. There is no service rendered for which you are paying for something you return tithe to the one to whom it always belonged in the first place. Do you hear the difference? Look at this. Leviticus 27, verse 30. All the tithe of the land, whose is it? Who does it belong to? All the tithe of the land is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. Translation, you don't own the tithe. The tenth is not yours. The tenth is God's. And God sets it aside so that his temple, his sanctuary, his ministry on earth can function. So it doesn't belong to you, God says. It belongs to me. Numbers chapter 18, verse 21. Behold, I have given the children of Levi, that's the Levites, all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform, the work, of the the work in the tabernacle of meeting. Notice it doesn't say, thank you for your generosity in giving to the Levites. No, 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 no. You don't give it. God gives it. Now, there is this problem for some that it's often still in your pocket. So in a sense, you might feel like you're giving it. You might feel like, well, I'm paying tithe. I'm giving tithe. But, but here's the beautiful picture of tithing. Tithing is not that you're giving 10%. It's that God is letting you manage 90%. I want to say that again. The great truth of tithe is not that you're so magnanimous and so philanthropic and so generous that you're giving 10%. Tithe is the great truth that God owns everything and he is trusting you to manage 90%. Do you feel the, you feel the difference? The sacred tenth is an acknowledgement of Yahweh's ownership. God owns everything God lets you manage 90%. Now, I mentioned to you just a moment ago that you should disabuse your mind and your vocabulary of the notion that you pay tithe. Let me disabuse you of another idea. That is that you get to keep 90%. No, you don't. You get to manage 90%. This whole idea of discretionary income is actually an, an effrontery to the larger picture of the way that God works and the reason that God has entrusted us with resources, financial or time or skill or educational, whatever the resources that God has entrusted to you, in the final analysis don't belong to you because you couldn't have earned them on your own. You needed God's life 
and God's breath and God's earth and God's wisdom, all of that was given to you as a gift. And then for you, for us, to think that we now suddenly own something, that we, have, that we are the proprietors, that we have ownership of something that, frankly, we could have never gotten without God's help in the first place is absurd. But God in his kindness, God in his generosity, God in his magnanimity says, hey, look, I'll let you manage 90% of my resources. Can somebody say amen? It's a beautiful picture. God lets us manage 90%. Now, why does he let us do it? The returning, again, from the Seventh-day Adventist Handbook of Theology, the returning of the tithe makes the worshiper a partner with God in concrete ways. There is an identification with the caregiving God whose spirit of sacrificial love is taken on. God's interests and concerns become the believer's interests and concerns. And I love this line. The covenant relationship is developed. You see, now it's not just like, oh, I'll pray for you, brother. Now it's not just like, oh, let's go sing songs. Let's go worship. All of that's nice and fine and good. But the beauty of the tithing system, the beauty of the the stewardship system, is that in concrete ways, in actual, material, physical ways, we are given the opportunity to demonstrate what we say we believe. That God is the owner of all things, things and that our lives are ultimately in his hands. God's like, that is so true. And here's an opportunity for you to demonstrate it. Not just in singing, not just in praying, not just in praising, but in actual, substantive, tangible, material ways in terms of both your time and your resources. Is that a beautiful picture or what? And when we trust God in that way, and when, we, when we're given the opportunity to not just ceremonially act out, but to actually act out this relationship that God is the owner of all things, our understanding of who he is and his covenantal faithfulness deepens. And we're like, man, God can be trusted. God can be relied upon. It actually becomes an act of worship. And this is one of the great themes that we encounter in Scripture, that offering whether returning of tithe or the giving of free will offerings is not something that you do out of duty or of responsibility. It's something that we do out of joy and as an act of worship to the great creator. Look at this. The psalmist says in Psalm 96, 8, 9, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. That's praise. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The thing I want you to get from this is notice how the psalmist seamlessly mingles the spiritual and the material. For the psalmist, there's no demarcation between, oh, well, that's the spiritual stuff over here, and this is the material stuff. That's the world we live in. We, most of us, sadly, really struggle to overcome this radical compartmentalization where what you're doing right now on Sabbath morning at 1220 is like the spiritual thing, and then what you do most of your life is like the, the, the real stuff. Buying and selling and working and getting paid and fixing and repairing and invoicing. And the psalmist seamlessly intermingles the physical, tangible, financial realities with the spiritual realities of praising and singing and giving honor to the name of God. Look at this one. Psalm 116, verses 12 to 14. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? What could I bring? We've already talked about this reality that God does not require sacrifice. He provides it. Can the church say amen? I will take the cup of salvation. There it is. That's spiritual. That's salvation. I will call upon the name of the Lord. There's spiritual. Watch this. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Seamless mingling of the spiritual and the secular or the, 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 the pro, uh, profane. Not really profane, but the, the, the financial. Just mingles them together. 
God calls us to a worship lifestyle, not merely a worship service. A worship service is easy to attend. You show up, you sit down, you sing your songs, you give a few, you know, bits and pieces in the little bag that goes by, and then you're done and dusted. No, God doesn't call us just to a worship service. As beautiful and as important as this is, this community of faith that we have here, God calls us to a worship lifestyle where we realize our education is a gift from God, a gift to be stewarded, a gift to be managed and to use to His glory. Our talents are a gift from God. Our very life and breath are a gift from God. Our children are a gift from God. My car is a gift from God. My recreation is a gift from God. My health is a gift from God. Everything I own is a gift from God. My genetics is a gift from God. Some of us have great genetics. Others, not so much. Right? Others, you know, there's a history of sickness in your family, and that's your inheritance, right? But even there, the life that we get, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, all life is a gift. Can you say amen? And all life is precious. Can you imagine the idea that even your genetics are a gift from God? Your finances are a gift from God? Your children are? Nothing that you have except for your fallen nature is not a gift from God. You! This is the lifestyle that God is calling us to. So when we talk in the Seventh-day Adventist church about giving, one of the things I love about the Seventh-day Adventist church is that for the most part, not always, but for the most part, you do not receive these impassioned pleas to give. Occasionally it happens, and occasionally it's appropriate. Occasionally. But in many churches, it's essential to get up and make these strong, urgent, essential, impassioned pleas for you to give because that's the way the system works. They play up on your heartstrings, and if you don't give, I don't get paid. And if you don't give, we can't build that new building. And if you don't give, and so you get this really tenuous relationship between minister and those that are ministered to where I'm dependent upon you right now to eat. I'm dependent on you right now to build a larger church building or whatever it might be, right? But one of the beauties of the biblical system is that it's a system. It's a system whereby we return to God what was his all along. That's the 10%. And then with the remaining 90%, we are given the opportunity, as the Israelites did, to bring free will offerings. To give of our own free will, as it says in Scripture, as our hearts are stirred. So I don't have to stand up here and say, please, oh please, we need to keep the lights on, please. No. Doesn't have to happen, and it never would happen. It's just not going to happen, and it doesn't happen in most Seventh-day Adventist churches. And the reason is, we have a system, a system of of systematic benevolence whereby people don't have to be pled with in order to give, playing on some emotional um, compulsion, but because people give because they understand fundamentally the biblical teaching of systematic benevolence that everything we own is already God's, and we just get the opportunity to give a little back. You with me? So the best giving follows vision, not just duty. Right? A bigger vision for what God is going to do through the Kingscliff Seventh-day Adventist Church, not just you have to give. The big difference. The best giving follows mission and not just structure. Right? What are we going to do? How do we want to impact the world? How do we want to impact our community? Not just how do we maintain this building. The best giving is built on people, not just on programs. The best giving follows passion, not pressure. And the best giving follows conviction, not manipulation. Now you might be thinking, oh, all that stuff's really good and it's really clever. But that didn't come from David. That material right there, that slide there came from this book called Faith and Finance, which is one of our growth groups that we run. Do you call it Faith and Finance, Sam? That's what the group is called? Faith and Finance. I tell you, I wish every one of our members could attend this group. 
The material is absolutely fantastic. Now, I don't know if it was the Thursday night that caused, you know, sort of modest registration. I think we only ended up with about eight registrants. It should have, it should have 80. We should be keeping people away because the biblical principle of the integration of faith and finance is huge. And I'm going to put the pressure on Campbell Wilson and Sam Bonello and Blair to do it again. The saints will come out this time. I believe it. I think we can do a little better than eight or nine because these principles are saturative biblically and they're essential experientially. Now, I want to close by, before we get to the part I want to talk about Jerry briefly, I want to just give you a picture of your own church's finances. And this is another thing I really love about the Seventh-day Adventist church. What I make is a matter of public record because I, I work for the church. And the church's financial records are all right up front. Up front, and I'll share with you now, basically the picture in a, in a snapshot, the Kingscliff Seventh-day Adventist Church finances. Nothing duplicitous here, nothing dark, nothing hidden. This is the, wor- the world that we live in. Now, I apologize, the numbers are not really easy to see, but you can at least see the graph, and I'll sort of tell you what's happening here. This is 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15. Okay, so that's the last five years of the Kingscliff Church's finances. The larger bar here, the sort of mustard-colored bar, is our tithe. That's the tithe that has been returned by the Kingscliff Church over the last five years. You might be saying, well, how do we know for 2015? This is projected tithe based on the numbers that have come in already. Campbell and I put together, he put it together, a simple formula where we look at the percentage that this church tends to give in the first half of the year versus the second half of the year, and then we just extrapolated that across what it looks like we'll end up with based that we're halfway through the calendar year. So here's what you end up with. 349000 in 2011, jumps to 385000 jumps to 438000 And I want to say this. This is exactly the kind of growth you want to see in tithe. You do not want to see tithe like this, or this, or this, or this, because tithe is simple. It grows based on membership and proportionality. You should never see a spike in your tithe unless you see a spike in membership or unless somebody has come into a large amount of money. In general, when you're looking as a, as a, as a church pastor or a, a, a treasurer or an administrator, you want to see your tithe on a gradual increase because that indicates to you two things. We're increasing in members and those members are faithful. They are systematically returning to God 10% Not giving, not paying, but returning to God what's already His. And it looks like this this church is, a, I would say, a reasonably healthy tithing church. Now, I can tell you right now that I am 100% certain that not every person who's a member here or a regular attender here is returning tithe. There's no way. If you just sit down and just scratch out a few little bits and pieces on a piece of paper, you'll see that those numbers should be at least half again and maybe double again what they presently are. So that's, that's just being very upfront with you. So either that means that all of us are being a little faithful or many of us are being fully faithful. It's some variation of that. Neither of those is really desirable, right? The better option is that we're all being faithful to God because he has always been faithful to us. Can you say amen? Now, from 349 to 385 to 480, 438, this is all great, but this is the kind of stuff that makes you a little nervous. Last year, in a, in a downturn year, our tithe jumped significantly, too much, frankly. Because when you see this kind of a jump, it becomes usually unsustainable. I could have predicted that something like this would very likely happen just by looking at our attendance numbers. Our attendance numbers here by baptisms and uh, sessions are increased. Our attendance is increasing. We're at about 
I don't know, 450 average in attendance and about 320 members. That's all fine and good. But we've not had a major spike in members, so there's really no reason that we should have had a major spike in tithe, except that people maybe started coming that weren't members here, and they returned their tithe, and now they've gone back to their home churches, or maybe somebody had a significant uh, financial um, windfall, and they've returned tithe on that. That happened with the General Conference, by the way, about six years ago. A Seventh-day Adventist, a faithful Seventh-day Adventist man, sold his business for a billion dollars, and he returned a tithe check to the conference for a hundred million dollars. Now, you should not be in, ast don't be in astonishment of that, because that is no more amazing than somebody that made a thousand dollars and returned a hundred. Can you say amen? If, if you have made a billion dollars profit increase, and you return a hundred billion, you have only returned to God what was his all along. And one of the things I don't like is when we stand in awe of those kind of contributions. Oh, the generosity. Oh, the kindness. As if that contribution is materially different than the person that makes the, the $10 contribution. You see the difference? Everybody contributes based on what they are able. And the moment that I saw this, I could almost have guessed that this would happen. But sadly, even if you take out this spike, you can see that we are only on track to basically from 438,000 to 441,000. We're only on track to keep pace with our 2013 tithe, but we know for a fact that we've added about 35 to 40 members in that year. Now, just put two and two together, and that tells us several things. Either there's been a major economic downturn, which there has been an economic downturn, but it's been happening over the last several years, or new members are not returning tithe, or people have lost their jobs, which has actually happened. A number of, of beautiful, wonderful, godly church members in this family are struggling right now to find a job. We need to be praying for these men and women as they look for jobs. Can you say amen to that? Okay, but I want to bring you up to speed as to where we're tracking right now. Membership is increasing. Tithe is not. That's either an alarm for us, hey, we need to be praying more earnestly for people to get back onto their feet financially, or it means that when the belt is tightening, we're actually retaining some of what was never ours in the first place. Now, here's another little interesting statistic I want to show you, and then we'll move on. This is offering, local offering, and one thing that's really disturbing about our local offerings here is they're all over the map. You don't see this sort of consistent growth. Look at what you see. 106 down to 73, up to 83, up to 163, down to 112. This is not what you want to see as a church pastor. Because this tells me that while people are being systematic in their tithing, people are not being systematic in their offering. Right? Because if it was systematic, you would see continuity in the offerings just as you see continuity in the tithe. Let me say a word about that. In a perfect world, and this would be, I would advise you and, and I would encourage you to think of this as your ideal. Your ideal is that you return 10% to God that was never yours in the first place. Your local church budget, the, the money that you give to the local church, should be somewhere between 25 and 5% of your income. In other words, around a quarter to a half of your tithe. Now you can see we're nowhere near that right? In fact, if you look here, 2011, this is about 30%, so that's close, that's above, you know, you're looking for between 25 and 50% of tithe for local budget. So here we're close, 30%, but this 19%, 19%, and then back up to 30%. Now, one of the major reasons that this figure here is so high is that we, we made the specific appeal for the church parking lot. 
And this is a really good lesson for us in the Kingscliff Church, that when you sell a vision, a picture of changing something, doing something, an actual tangible thing that people can see, they give to it. And that's a beautiful picture. It's a picture very much like Exodus 36. When, when specific monies were needed, specific monies were given, and that's beautiful. But it doesn't solve the sort of troubling picture that we see here, that we have what appears to be a mostly faithful congregation in returning tithe, but when it comes to offerings, we're all over the map. And we're down here at 19%, which is, frankly, it's, it's atrocious. Now, I'm not giving you a slap on the wrist. I'm just letting you know, as a church, it's very hard to function within the situation in which we find ourselves. Now, I'm going to say this. I, I want to be discreet, but I'm just going to put this out there. Many churches, and this church is no exception, have a few families or a few members who are well-heeled, who have more money on average than the rest of us. That can be a real blessing to the church, but can also be a real curse. And I think that in this church, at times, it has been a curse. Because what's happened is, is that when we've come to the end of our financial year, if there's a shortfall, we just go look to those two or three or four or five families and we ask them to write the check. We know that they'll write the check. We have a sense that they'll write the check. And so it's easy for us to say, well, the church will be fine. But beloved, at the end of the day, the people that were bringing the acacia and the gold and the gems, they didn't say, well, somebody else will bring plenty of acacia. Oh, somebody else will bring plenty of gems. He's got more acacia trees than me anyway. No, no, no. They didn't give based on what those around them were giving. They gave based on the stirring of their own heart. And clearly they weren't paying attention to how much people were giving because they brought too much. Do you feel that? So one of the things I would love to see in this church here, especially when it comes to local offerings, is that we would globally, universally as a church, take ownership of our local church situation and not just wait till the end of the year and know that you know, one of a, a dozen or less families is going to write that check to make up the difference. I'll just be right up front with you and tell you that my wife and I's financial goal is to return not less than 20% of our money back to God. That's our goal. Um, I know families that return 80% of their money to the cause of God. 80%. So they're not just giving their 10 and keeping their 90. They're saying, how much can we give? I feel like my wife and I are babes. You know, we have a very modest goal. It's only 20%. We're usually very close to that, maybe slightly over, maybe slightly under. But 20% to me feels like nothing when God has given me everything. Can you say amen? Now, I was going to show you what the conference does with your money, and I'll give you a very simple breakdown. I'll just give you the five-second version. If this is a dollar that you put in the tithe plate, this 63% stays in the North New South Wales Conference. That's pastors, evangelism, and local department, and, and North New South Wales departments. All of these other things here, the general conference gets 2%, the union gets 8%, the SPD gets 8%. There's little bits and pieces in here. The campgrounds get 4%. Education gets, uh, let's see, 5%. When we place tithe into the envelope, a dollar of tithe, 63% of that is staying in our local conference. You might be saying, well, where's the other 37% go? The short version is... We're not a congregational church like the churches down the road that all they need to care about is their parking lot, their pews, their sound system, their projector. We have a global church. Can somebody say amen? 
We have a global church, and frankly, if we are not faithful in doing what God has asked us and given us the privilege to do, our global church cannot be sustained because the majority of Seventh-day Adventists live in places where their offerings don't even begin by volume to compare to ours. So we have not just the responsibility, but this huge privilege to sponsor pastors, thousands and thousands of pastors and congregations all over the world. And that's far more important than having a nicer church building here. That doesn't have to be placed in tension. We can have both. But we're not here just building up our own little kingdom so that everybody can see that we have the nicest and best church on the street. Can you say amen? Okay, final thing I want to talk about here, and that is this idea. The church is a community of gifted people who serve the world. And this last week, we lost one of our own just yesterday, and that's Jerry. I'm going to do my best not to get choked up here. One of the great things about Jerry, and there are many things, but one of the most admirable things about Jerry has to be that he was a hard worker. He had his blood, sweat, and tears in the game. He had a lot of skin in the game, so to speak. I remember in one particular occasion where, where myself and uh, Toby and Josh were out here planting these trees. Right? And, and a, a smaller group had come, Daniel, and it helped for a, about an hour. And then we were here till late. Late. I mean, the sun is setting, and we're here late, moving trees. But you know what? There was somebody here later than us, and that was Jerry. Right? Whenever a project was done, Jerry would always be the last one there. And you just walk around these grounds. He had a real vision for the outside of this church. And one of the things that makes me saddest about his passing away is that we'll never get to see the full accomplishment of what he had in mind. Because he, he, you'd look at his beautiful concrete work that he's done over here at the, at the uh, junior Sabbath school room and where the Arise office is. You know, beautiful work. He put his time out there. He wasn't a fast worker. You know, he wasn't somebody that got out there and brrr, got it all done. He was slow and steady wins the race. We'd have staff meeting every Tuesday morning. We'd sit down and be like, okay, Jerry, what do you have? And he'd, he'd always have something, something of importance. He, he never had nothing to say. Whether it was a big project like the church parking lot or a smaller concern like putting in a pole so that people don't, you know, drive their cars up here or the signage or the lights or, I mean, he always had his hat in it. I remember one thing that, will, that is really dear to me now. In my Sabbath school room over there in the, the youth Sabbath school room, there was a hole in the wall and it was really unsightly. And I said, hey, Jerry, man, there's this hole in the wall. Oh, he said, I haven't seen it. And that's just the way he was, because if he had seen it, it would have been fixed. And I said, oh, could I point it out to you? I pointed it out to him. This was on a Tuesday. I came in the following day, Wednesday, and said, hey, Jerry, how are things? We were just catching up. He said, oh, I fixed that hole. It wasn't next week. It wasn't next month. If something needed to be done, he did it. And... While we will never get to see Jerry again on this planet, here he is just recently at ASI, right? This is, I think this is, is this your mom, Tammy? Is that right? Tammy's mom, Kevin back here, Robin. I don't know who this character is, but here's Jerry looking handsome and happy. You know, we won't get to see Jerry again on this earth, but when we come to this church and we see the work that he's done, the concrete work, Whenever I hear that lawnmower running, I'll be thinking about Jerry because he was forever doing battle with that lawnmower man, welding the, the mower deck. Hey, Jerry, what'd you do today? Welded the mower deck. 
Hey, Jerry, what'd you get up to today? Welded the mower deck. I said, why don't we buy a new mower? No, I can fix this one. It's just like, man, this guy is wild. He's just a glutton for punishment. And I love this particular, Kevin Mevsky sent me this picture this morning. I really love this one because it, it shows Jerry in his element, right? If there's work to be done, if there's a foundation to be laid, if there's a bobcat to be driven, right? If there's mulch to be moved, if there's bark that needs to be spread, if there's work to be done, Jerry was there to do it. And I tell you, this is a beautiful picture. And it's a legacy because Jerry was only here about three years. And you think about that. You think about the, the way that this church has been benefited physically, aesthetically, from somebody who was an American, these crazy Americans, coming here to a church that wasn't his own, but he made it his own. And he didn't just make it his own in some spiritual sense. He made it his own like the Israelites of old made it their own. He brought his blood and his sweat and his muscle and his tears and his energy and his hard work. Jerry was not a wealthy man. We wouldn't have expected him to have financed a massive renovation in the church. But if the church decided to, to do a renovation, you can be sure he would have brought what he had. He would have brought what he had. And beloved, this is a, this is a, great, a great witness to us that it's not, it's not what you bring. And it's not how much you bring. It's that you bring. And Jerry brought something to this church. He brought something to these facilities. He brought something to this community. And in that sense, he has left us a legacy that we can remember every time we come here to worship, to meet, to pray, and to sing. Jerry left a legacy. It's a beautiful legacy. And my desire is to leave a legacy. Mine won't look like Jerry's because I wouldn't know the first thing about concrete. Right? Except that it hurts when you fall off of it on a skateboard. Or fall onto it off of a skateboard. But I want to make a legacy here. Don't you want to leave a legacy? Not just here in the local Kingscliff Church, but in God's church. Everything you own is God's. Your talents, your energy, your strength, your health. What a way to live. To return in an act of praise and worship and thankfulness to God. The stuff that was His all along. Can you say amen? I want to challenge you. And I want to challenge myself in this regard to be like Jerry. Because Jerry was being like Jesus. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we've lost one of our best and brightest, one of our most beloved. Father, somebody who could always be counted on when the work needed to be done. Somebody who would drive that tractor late into the night. Somebody who'd be up early measuring the curbage. Somebody who was always walking around just to be sure that the doors were locked. Father, we're going to miss Jerry. And we think especially at this point of Robin. What a beautiful woman who has made her own contribution to the church. And she must be absolutely devastated right now. And our heart goes out to her. Our prayers go out to her. Father, we pray that you would be what you promised to be in your spirit. And that is a comforter. A very present help in times of trouble. And Father, surely the loss of a spouse in a foreign country. That's a time of trouble. And Father, we need you to be God right now. We need you to be there. To bring comfort to bring hope, to bring assurance. 
Oh, Father, how we wish that, that they were here and they were with us and it was just another day with Jerry and, and Robin, but those days sadly are behind us now. But fortunately, not all days are behind us. There will come a day in the very distant future, or the very near future, the not too distant future, as we sang, it is well with our soul. We know that one day, that we won't be singing only of the river of peace, we'll be singing of that beautiful river that flows through the new Jerusalem. And Father, we will be assembled there, not just with Jerry, but with all of our loved ones. Father, we've had some funerals here the last year. And we know there will be funerals yet to come. But we have a confidence, a confidence in Christ, a confidence in His resurrection, that the breath that we breathe and the health that we have and the life that we live was always just a gift from You anyway. And Father, if in Your providence You lay some of Your beloved to rest, we remember that great Scripture verse that says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. And Father, we know that when Jerry breathed his last, that you were there very near to him, right with him. And the very next thing that our departed brother will see will be the lovely face of Jesus. And Father, may that be true for all of us. We do believe that Jesus is coming soon. But Father, for some of us in this room, Jesus will come sooner than he will come in the clouds. He will come to us personally. And Father, I pray that this would be a church that has a heart to give, a heart to return, a heart to worship, a heart to make an impact in this community, and to be people that make a difference. Father, help us to remember, it's not how much we give or what we give, but that we give. And help us to remember, Father, that in giving, we are only returning, and in returning, we are worshiping. Father, heal our hearts, heal our church, and make us a modern-day community like the Israelites, a community of faith, a community of service, a community of worship, a community of friends, a community of sons and daughters of the Most High. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Let all of God's people say, Amen.